The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, we put Tony Hall's plans to put more women behind the microphone under the microscope. We hear from the new man at TalkSport, former Fighting Talk presenter Colin Murray, and we wrap up all this week's media news, including violence on TV, David Cameron topless and twerking. And we talk chickens, the Great British Bake Off and the end of BBC Two's Top of the Lake with The Guardian's TV and radio editor, Rebecca Nicholson. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And joining me this week, back in London after the exertions of our Edinburgh special last week, are Media Guardian's Josh Halliday and Ollie Mann from the Answer Me This podcast and much else besides. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. You're both resplendent in checks. We are, actually. Look at this. (laughs) Coordinated. Yeah. And in stereo. (laughs) <laughs> Apparently so, yeah. Can we keep it up for the whole thing? <laughs> yeah, can we use it? Yeah, a yeah. doppelganger speaking simultaneously the whole way through. Well, uh, on that ambitious note, we start with BBC Director General Tony Hall's plans, announced in Edinburgh last week, to increase the number of women the BBC has on its local radio breakfast shows. He wants 50% of the breakfast presenters to be female by the end of next year. That's quite a jump, as we shall find out in a moment. And it's a response to criticism that the BBC does not have enough women on air. But how big is the problem, and is this the answer? I caught up with Miranda Sawyer, the Observer's radio correspondent and spokeswoman for lobby and research group Sound Women, and asked her what she made of Tony's big idea. Well, I thought it was quite interesting that it was said on a panel. Essentially what happened was Tony Hall was uh, kind of parachuted in as a, as a surprise guest on this panel at the Edinburgh Television Festival. And he talked about a lot of different things, including executive pay and all sorts of stuff. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. He said something about radio. I wonder if... He's just said it. You know, sometimes people just say things on panels, don't they? And then it was picked up and I thought, oh, no, he, I think he does actually mean it. And what I thought was it's good that some of our research um, at Sound Women has, has been noted because you can do research and that's fine and we can highlight problems. But unless they're kind of acted on, the research is sl- slightly pointless, really. So I was rather excited by the fact that he seemed to be taking notice of some of our points, really. And your research has come up with facts such as, I think, is it only 20% of, of solo shows on radio presented by women, for example? Yes, exactly. I mean, our, the research that we did, I have to say, was across a national uh, network. So what we found, which was uh, we did a kind of snapshot of a, a day in March, what we found across national networks was that most shows were presented by men, 80%, 80% were presented of solo shows presented by men and 20% presented by women. And in breakfast, it was 87% solo men and 13% solo women. And when they were shared... It was 66% man and, men and women and 34% man and man, no two women. But what was interesting actually about this is that it's local radio. Local radio is really important because essentially that's where a lot of kind of national radio presenters come through. There's a load of kind of BBC talent that has come through local radio. And if you think, if you think about female talent, Helen Bowden herself came up through local radio, but Fee Glover, Jane Garvey, Jenny Murray... Victoria Derbyshire, Eleanor Oldroyd, they all came up through local radio. So it's quite an important kind of recruiting ground, I suppose, really. And it's not, done, it's not been doing very well. So we haven't done any direct research, but BBC figures them show there's, a, there's only two BBC local breakfast shows that are presented by a solo woman, one in BBC Leeds, which is Liz Green, and one in BBC Radio Solent, Alina Jenkins. But is and a so quota, my question to you, Miranda, is a quota the right way to go about it? It feels like a real sort of, uh, a sort of blunt instrument, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm not personally in favour of quotas. What it seems to me is that 
it isn't a quota. He's saying they're aiming for. What it is is a gauntlet, I think, rather than a quota. I think he's chucked down the gauntlet and said, you need to be doing something about this. And he may well have sent BBC local radio stations into a massive panic, but it's a gauntlet, it's not a quota. You know, he's not also saying that they have to be presented by solo women. He's saying you want at least a one woman on that show. Well, let me take you to a point that was made by uh, John Myers, who's the former GMG radio chief exec, now runs uh, Team Rock, but he's also done a, a, a fair few BBC reviews in the past. And, and his worry, he was, um, he was quite critical of it. He said, uh, Tony Hall's gone sex mad. And he said, the, the, da- the danger is that uh, some of the women hired might think they've just been uh, taken on because they're ticking a box and not because they're the best person for the job. I, I actually really uh, admire John Myers. He's been very supportive of uh, uh, Sam women in the past. I think that he's slightly fallen to this idea that it is a quota it's an aim which is slightly different and it's not that hard to get women on the radio really you just have to change the way that you recruit stop looking in the same areas and actually BBC local radio are trying to do that David Holdsworth who's the controller of the British regions and uh, BBC said that work's underway, work is underway there's initiatives to widen the way the BBC local radio recruits and identifies talented presenters I don't think anybody wants somebody on the air whether male or female who can't do the job that's just it's ludicrous. Nobody really wants that. But if you start specifically looking for women that can perhaps accompany somebody who's already there, if you've got 32 shows that are presented by a solo presenter, then obviously you have to find somebody that will work with that presenter. But it's not impossible. I mean, it, you know, I've seen it done even on kind of um, national uh, digital stations. If you think about one extra recruited Gemma Kearney, initially she was on the air with um, Trevor Nelson. And she she came on to his breakfast show as an inverted comma, one might think, a sidekick. Entirely changed the show, completely brilliant. These shows can be improved in this way. There's nothing wrong with it. Okay, Miranda, thank you very much. And thanks to the mini Miranda in the background, I think we have there. (laughs) Frankie Mayer, yeah, broadcasting legend. (laughs) The radio presenter of the future. Okay, Miranda, thanks very much. Thank you. So, Ollie, what do you reckon? Miranda points out it's a target, not a quota. But if he doesn't hit 50%, and doubtless there are a million ways you can measure that, so probably the chances of him doing that are zero. But if he doesn't hit it, it will be regarded as a failure. I think that's right. And I think whether you call it a gauntlet or a quota, it's the wrong one. I think it's right, obviously, that there should be 50% of women on there. And I think it's great, actually, that across the board people are saying that that's obvious. It is obvious, and it should be the case. But I think, uh, as you'll know, if you're a listener to my uh, podcasting colleague Helen Zaltzman's excellent podcast, Sound Women, you'll know that one of the problems in getting women to air is not just that the opportunities aren't there for them, it's that actually radio stations receive fewer reels from female presenters than they do from male presenters. And there is an issue about women coming forward as presenters themselves as well and actually having the training that's necessary to be in front of the mic in the first place uh, on the same scale as men. So I think the target is too soon. I mean, the end of next year to me seems unrealistic and what you might end up with is a lot of disgruntled and annoyed male presenters who are suddenly having to share the mic with a female co-host who they may not feel is worthy of, of the attention. I think he should have been bolder, but longer, and should have said, we want 50% of women on all BBC shows, national and regional, which is what it should be, in five years' time, rather than trying to do it all in a year and then only on local radio anyway, where, let's be honest, the audience is shrinking and getting older. And it feels like it could get messy in the sense, uh, if you were a... If you're a man presenting a, a local radio breakfast show, you know, maybe you'd be sitting slightly more uncomfortable in your seat. But also the idea that 
come the middle of next year, you're going to get let go because there's a quota that needs to be, or a, a gauntlet, or a target, or whatever <laughs> you like, you know, a woolly mitten mm. that, that needs to be met. And, uh, you know, you can see the respecter of legal action and all, all kinds of things happening. You know, this is, yeah. it's, it's not easy, as they found out with the Radio Force Today program. They wanted to put another woman in there for, for a long time, but there are contracts, there are people already in place, and, you know, it's not done overnight. And I just think it's not the biggest problem either. Uh, not the women thing. The women thing is the biggest problem, but the biggest problem is Radio 2, specifically. I think the moment that they gave Simon Mayo that drive time show because he didn't want to live in Salford, and that is the reason he got that drive time show, they made the wrong choice there. I mean, he's great. I love Simon Mayo. But, you know, when you put Chris Evans on breakfast and then you've got a day of Evans, Bruce, Vine, right, and then not a woman but Simon Mayo, that was just clearly and obviously the wrong decision. And throughout the day on Radio 2, which is the most important thing because it is the most listened to station in the country, you've got women being, I mean, Sally Traffic. You know, her name is her job. They would never do that. They would never have Bob traffic. Um, <laughs> I just think uh, the position of women on Radio 2 is completely ridiculous when it's the most important station in the country. Well, if there is a Bob traffic out there, we'd love to hear from you, <laughs> especially if you're stuck in congestion. And I remember when Thunderbirds was big about 10 years ago, uh, I was working on a newspaper and they launched a hunt to find someone called Tracy Island. That is cool. And they did find someone called Tracy Island. Never. Wow. But did she want to take part in a feature? Did she... <laughs> did is, she heck and that was the end of local journalism that was yeah, well, actually it was a national <laughs> newspaper but yeah anyway let's not let's not um, indulge in private grief anyway um, we move on to our next topic which is violence on television media regulator Ofcom has announced a, a review this week uh, in particular into whether programmes watched by children and the under 18s have become too violent over the last decade the regulator said that no research had been done into it uh, for about 10 years what have they been doing with their time and it was spurred into action by a violent death on Channel 4 soap Hollyoaks, which I know we all watch, which was broadcast before 7pm. Around that time, it said, about a quarter of the audience were under 15. Josh, what do you reckon? Violence on TV, is, is, that, a, is that a problem that bothers you, especially pre-Watershed? Well, well, pre-Watershed, I can't say I'm a massive connoisseur of children's television and um, I wouldn't be able to point to many examples of violence on it. But what I do know is that the last series of Luther was extraordinarily violent and that was, I mean, that was minutes after 9 o'clock. You know, I remember in one scene a head crashing through the roof and me almost flying back um, you know, behind the sofa in terror and picking up the phone to Ofcom. Um, <laughs> and it was about quarter again. past nine. Yeah, again, yeah, exactly. Stop picking up the phone to Ofcom, Josh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, I mean, they are pushing the boundaries now, so it's right for them to look at this pre-watershed. And, you know, as they say, there isn't that much research that people can point to as to whether this is a problem, but it's good that Ofcom's taking this proactive action. And Ollie, there's a difference between children's programmes and programmes that children watch. And of, uh, of, uh, often the second category is, is programmes like EastEnders, which they watch in their millions, I hear. Uh, and Hollyoaks is one of those that really slips between the two, I think, to an extent. I mean, obviously, it's pretty much aimed at teens and preteens. I was kind of surprised that apparently 15.7% of the audience were age 4 to 15 and 10% age 4 to 9 uh, you'd expect four to fifteen, but four to nine years old. I, I think that's that's irresponsible parenting, basically. Uh, Hollyoaks isn't for those kids, and although it is on before the watershed, it's blindingly obvious, I think, to every parent that your four-year-old probably shouldn't be watching Hollyoaks for nothing else. The way that um, people are presented sexually, never mind the violence. So. I kind of don't have that much sympathy for parents who leave their kids in front of Hollyoaks and then complain that it's on before the watershed and they expect everything to 
not have a somewhat violent resolution. This was a revenge thriller storyline, apparently, in which someone was pushed in front of a train at the end of it. So it was quite clearly signposted it was going to end messily. I don't know. The poor chap who uh, got pushed in front of the train. (laughs) You'd never have gone there in the first place. Um, At which point you'd probably take the four-year-old out of the room, wouldn't you? You'd think so. You'd think so. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. And I also do think there's an element of Ofcom justifying their existence in this time of cuts at the moment by saying, oh, look, there's been no research into this for a decade. Let's do some, because that's the kind of thing we do. How much does the watershed exist now in the kind of um, hashtag to mention Netflix? They got enough uh, publicity last week, courtesy of Kevin Spacey. But uh, as Josh mentioned there with, with Luther, you know, is, is it still there or is it sort of an old fashioned concept? What do you think when everything's video on demand and all you have to do is tick a box on the iPlayer and you can watch what you like? I think there's an argument that you more passively enjoy TV. That, there, you know, if it's not on demand stuff, if you are clicking a button on your remote control, you have an expectation that it's not going to be gratuitous before 9 pm. And I think that's broadly speaking a, a good idea. But I. I just think it's clear. It's it's clear from the tone of most programs, and that you can give most people the sense of intelligence to know what they're watching, unless they're literally sort of, you know, chair bound and unable to change the channel. Um, they're making a decision about the kind of content they want to watch. I think, and and if you're watching Channel Four at seven p.m. it's or, or six thirty p.m. It's different to watching the Chuckle Brothers. Well, we wait and see what Ofcom has to say and whether it changes anything we see on the box. Also this week, the New York Times website was hacked. The site was taken down for several hours by an organisation calling itself the Syrian Electronic Army, which supports the Assad regime in Syria. But the picture was slightly complicated, at least it certainly was to me, because it was actually an attack on an Australian web hosting company called Melbourne IT. So, Ollie, I'm looking to you here for guidance. How does an attack on a company in Melbourne affect a newspaper based in New York? Uh, because they're hosting it, basically. They're providing ISP. Simple as that. Simple as that, yeah. Next up on Media Talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, look, very clever from the Syrian Electronic Army, and they've done this before. They hacked the BBC Weather Twitter feed. That was them. Um, and I believe The Guardian as That's well, right, I believe point. so. Um, so, you know, they've done this before. It works. It gets them publicity. Weirdly, it doesn't get them much attention for their cause I've, I've never heard anyone say oh actually yeah Assad he's a really good bloke because they hacked the BBC weather account but what's interesting is usually as far as I can work out this happens through phishing so this happens through them sending an email with a dodgy link in it that someone who works in these massive media companies then clicks uh, inadvertently not really thinking through the consequences logs in perhaps to a dummy page with their user credentials and then suddenly hey presto the Syrian hackers have access to massive organisations like The Guardian and the BBC. And I wonder if the solution to this isn't actually trying to stop people like the Syrian Electronic Army doing what they're doing, because that is part of modern propaganda warfare now, but in fact just educating everyone who works in these companies, you know, look at the links you're clicking on. When you click on them, do they go to the link that it said, or is it directing you somewhere else? And usually the clues are there if you're looking. Uh, but it's tough, I guess, Josh, because they sort of come in through the back door in one sense. The New York Times can do all they can to, to improve their own security. But when it come, comes in through you know, the, 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 the hosting company, then it's, uh, you know, there's, there's not much they can do. Uh, I saw that the, uh, their chief information officer said uh, it was like uh, instead of trying to break into Fort Knox, which is presumably a reference to the New York Times company, they went into their local savings and loan company, <laughs> yeah. which is tough on the local savings and loan company. But I see what he's saying. They've gone in through the back door, haven't they? I mean, it's a clever way to do it. Uh, they're not directly attacking Thomas Schaffernacker when they try and get into the BBC weather account. They're actually going via a, a server provider and, and doing it that way, which is, you know, it's less suspecting for the for the victims. And um, no, it clearly works. And people like The Guardian and The Washington Post even as well was affected. Uh, they've got to steal up their systems, I think. And And it's big business now, improving security. If I try and log into my Twitter account, I have to uh, literally jump through several hoops uh, now. (laughs) Is that the authentication process? That's right, I've got them in my bag. They're very portable. That's what they've done instead of capture. Instead of what? 
Capture is the thing where you've got the funny looking words and numbers. Oh yeah, I can never read those. Yes, so they've invented new ways of doing these all the time. And the, the one that they're working on at the moment, which is going to be the next big thing apparently, is showing you an ad and then asking you a question like, what colour was the man's hat that was driving the Volvo? Wow, this that's is almost a terrifying like an, future. That's like an intelligence <laughs> test. Yeah. God, I, should, I truly am doomed. I should never better log into my email again. But the two-step authentication thing is interesting. That's it. That's what I do. Yeah, right. And you, have you elected into that? Because uh, I believe I have. Yeah, yeah I voted. We had yeah. choice, did we, Jim? Yeah. We were sort of um, ushered into it, shall oh, we so, Okay, so Guardianistas were told you have to do two-step authentication. Okay, because I haven't... I don't want to give any ammunition to people who are trying <laughs> to hack into us, but uh, yes. Because I haven't chosen to do it because I can't be bothered, but that, I know that leaves me more vulnerable, and... I wonder if actually the next step is people putting pressure on Twitter to say everyone has to have two-step authentication because that does actually stop a lot of this. It can be tricky if you lose your mobile phone and also lose the uh, and can't find the person whose mobile phone you've got to reserve. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, enough of my personal grief. Uh, Time to move on to less serious matters now. Potentially. This time last year, it was pictures of Prince Harry cavorting in Las Vegas that has newspaper editors scratching their heads wondering if they should publish them. Fast forward 12 months, and it's another prominent media figure who is wealthy enough never had to have to work again. That's right, it's David Cameron. The Prime Minister was pictured in four national newspapers topless on a beach in Cornwall, prompting a row with Number 10, who tried to persuade the editors not to publish them. Downing Street there said there had been a binding agreement to leave the PM in peace in return for a few pictures that they were allowed to take at the start of his holiday. Alas, the pictures of Cameron, if you didn't see them, he was... Um, well, he was topless and he was sort of fumbling around trying to get into his trunks under a towel with a picture of Mickey Mouse on the, on the front of it. That was inevitably too good to resist. Uh, Josh, what do you think? Were these uh, newspaper editors right to publish or should they have left the big man alone? Or the, wow. very, the, the, the getting bigger man the bigger, alone? The growing, the growing man. Uh, well, I'm all for embarrassing David Cameron, especially when it's his fourth holiday of the year. But I do think there wasn't much public interest value in, in the pictures, actually, despite them being very funny. Um, uh, and of an embarrassing old man putting his uh, trunks on under a Mickey Mouse <laughs> towel, <laughs> which never grows old. I mean, so it's an interesting um, point about 24-hour media. These weren't pictures um, posted by someone on Twitter or by you know another holidaymaker or tourist. These were uh, photographers working on behalf of the national press and printed by four national newspapers, the biggest red, uh, except the Sun, of course. Uh, and so it does raise an interesting question as to what a pact with the press actually means and, and, and whether such a thing exists and... and I guess it will change how this goes forward in the future. Ollie, what did you make of it? I think it's really interesting because I think the press was still able to use the defence that the internet exists. Therefore, these pictures would be all over the web versions of gossip sites and celebrity news. And therefore, it would be ridiculous for the papers not to publish them. But like they jo- did with Prince Harry. Like time. they did Some with Prince Harry. Prince Harry. But that was a point with Prince Harry because, of course, that went to TMZ. Mm. Uh, whereas this genuinely was uh, a newspaper story. If the newspapers hadn't printed it, most people wouldn't have been aware of it. It wasn't, as you say, going all over Twitter. So I think it's really interesting that they're still able to use that defence. I agree. I thought it was completely unnecessary to publish them, really. Personally, even from the four holidays a year point of view, I kind of think, well, he is the leader of our country and he does have a young family and he does always have to cancel his holidays and he has got an election coming up so it's probably his last chance give him a break but uh, even that aside I still think it wasn't really uh, Do you think it was a non-story or was it, was it a non-story or was it actually unfair to, the, to Cameron? I think it was unfair I don't I mean no one would have taken this picture of Winston Churchill far less would the Telegraph have printed it <laughs> He'd never have had a Mickey Mouse towel would he? Well we, we don't know do we? <laughs> Right, well, on that note, we can't do better than that. Time to switch to uh, television now. And it's all changed at everyone's favourite TV channel, Sky Living. For a long time, the least cherished, you might think, of Sky's entertainment channels as it pumped money and big programs into Sky One, Sky Atlantic and the like. 
that's all about to change in September. It's going to get a makeover, and if any channel likes a makeover, then it's Sky Living. Josh, you heard from the channel boss in uh, Edinburgh. What can we expect on our screens next month? It's Antonia Herford-Jones, who's the director of Sky Living. That's a very Sky Living name. Took over last year. I know very very much so. She was impressive, actually, um, given that it was the final session of Edinburgh and everyone was feeling slightly jaded and and dying to get on their aeroplanes or trains back home. But what she said was that she's going to de-pink the channel, literally and metaphorically, by um, dropping the pink branding, um, turning it into a more silver-blue um, logo. And this is part of her drive to um, move the channel away from uh, the impression of women watching um, the channel alone in their bedrooms in their pink fluffy negligee, she said. I mean, the channel has a 60% female audience, so you know it's got a sizable um, audience of men watching. She wants it to be uh, a channel that women can watch along with their partners, which makes complete sense. Are women these days really interested in you know, girly programs just about weddings and uh, and uh, fashion and the like? I, I don't think so. I mean, Hannibal and Dracula are on the channel and have been incredibly popular. And also elementary as well. I mean, it makes sense for a uh, female-leaning channel, shall we say, uh, to do this in this day and age. Ollie, what do you think? It kind of feels like Sky have never quite known what to do with living since it bought it. Yeah, I, I totally think that. And I thought the uh, pop quiz that you did the other week when uh, Maggie and Emily were here as to programs on different Sky channels, yeah, I do, uh, was absolutely to the point. I think it's very hard to know quite what it's doing in part of the mix there. Um, it's sort of like it's where shows go when they're not good enough to be on Sky Atlantic uh, or not uh, PSB enough to be on Sky Arts or populist enough to be on Sky One. So it can feel a bit like a dumping ground. And actually, I don't see a problem with, a, with within that <laughs> scope. I don't see a problem with it being focused on women and very much firmly for women. Because I think when you get that far down the EPG... That's what all those channels are, you know. History is about history, discovery is about discovery. Living is quite ironically named. Uh, <laughs> watching, watching Katie Price get waxed, now that's living. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, it's aimed at women. Uh, and actually, I think if they de-pink it too much, it becomes even blander and even harder to place. So I think it's a tightrope walk, that. And if you look at Dave and how tremendously popular and successful that is, and that is incredibly blokey branding, you know. They do stuff about garden sheds and witty banter and all this stuff, and it's named after a bloke. Um, I'm not sure it matters that it's very clearly targeted at women. It's about the content being good. I think the problem is, at the moment, it feels like it's aimed at stupid women. Also, the the programmes that they do are too readily duplicated. There's a lot of fat women losing a lot of weight. And my girlfriend's a big fan of fat women losing a lot of weight programmes. But they can be found on MTV, BBC Three, E4, uh, Sky One, Channel Five. I I mean, every channel that has a remotely female audience has a fat woman losing a lot of weight programme. And living needs to be more distinct than that. And the living golden era was, uh, was kind of queer eye for the straight guy and the L word and all that when it did kind of feel vaguely groundbreaking. But that's 10 years ago. Quirkier. Yeah. It could do with being a bit quirkier. Sky quirky? Calling it sky quirky? Yeah. Not sure that would work, John. Okay. Yeah. I'm just throwing it out there. I think your brand consultancy has come to an end. <laughs> right. Well, I'll, by the end of this podcast, I'll come up with another one. Okay. And finally this week, we can't call a halt without mention of the big news story of the week. That's right, it's Miley Cyrus's performance at the MTV VMAs. That's uh, Video Music Awards if you're aged 14 or over. The incredibly scary-sounding Parents Television Council issued a formal complaint and said the twerking routine shouldn't have been included in a show supposedly suitable for 14-year-olds. 
One of its advisory board members said the show simply substituted talent with sex. If only it was that easy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Josh, were you horrified by uh, the uh, uh, display of twerking? I was absolutely horrified. I only watched it three times. I mean, um, <laughs> the, t- the Times apparently said that twerking has been around for 20 years. Can really? You that? 20 years. Yeah, two decades. Oh. And the first time I saw it was at the George Hotel at the Edinburgh <laughs> Festival last weekend uh, in, in the Dave Party. For in me. the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was before I went out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, should it have been shown? Is the audience 14? Is that the youngest audience? At least, it, probably a lot younger. If they're watching Hollyoaks, they're definitely watching the MTV uh, Video Music Awards. It's, it's unappetising, isn't it? But shall we be too sensitive about this? I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, she's trying to sell a single after all, isn't she? It's not the world's biggest scandal, is it? Oh, I think it is, Ollie. I think too much blame is being laid at Miss Cyrus's door here when this is symptomatic of what uh, women do to sell pop records and has been for the last 20 years. Uh, you know, and Kim Wilde never did it. <laughs> well, especially the women with this kind of Disney Mickey Mouse Club background where, you know, you look at Britney, you look at Christina in her, in her chaps. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely classic, isn't it? All yourself trousers, down, yeah. over-sexualise yourself. Uh, Rihanna is the biggest uh, female star in the world. So that's kind of what happens. And yeah, it is, it's horrible. That's the status quo. And Miley Cyrus is just the latest. You know, the record industry needs to look at that. Uh, not just MTV and not just... Miley Cyrus. But twerking, just to, for people who don't know, Josh, your, your ten-second definition? <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's an elaborate dance move which involves sticking your backside out and sort of touching the floor, isn't it, with your hands? Not that I'm an expert, but uh, that's the way I've been taught. Good, it's the opposite of Dancing <laughs> on the Ceiling by Lionel Richie, that's yeah. what you're telling me. Move on. Right, well, that's enough for this part of the show. I have to go for a twerk. My thanks to uh, Ollie Mann and to uh, Josh Halliday. Time now for part two of the show. Um, Colin Murray is the former Five Live presenter who since joined its commercial radio rival TalkSport. He started his new weekday show a couple of weeks ago. Earlier I met up with Colin and we talked about all sorts of things, including Match of the Day. You might remember he used to present the Sunday Night Highlights programme but left at the end of last season amid various press reports that he'd fallen out with some of the pundits on the show. Here's what Colin had to say. Phil Burney, who I still have because I'm still working for him, but we have a really good relationship. For the first two years, in a, in a very amicable way, I was always very open about how I felt it should be as far removed from Saturday night as possible, which wasn't disparaging to Saturday night. It was just that it, it was felt that Sunday was created for a, a different market, if you like. It was created for a younger market. And I, from the very beginning, was always pushing to get new people in of which there's a massive list of people who'd never done Match of the Day 2 before until I took over. I was lucky to have two great producers in Alistair McIntyre and Stephen Lyle who, were, who, were, who agreed with me. And there was always a bit, of a, a bit of push and pull about how far we could get it away from the original format, how much we could do. So when it came to the start of the third season and it was moving, it was pretty obvious and it, it was explained to me that if anything it needed to move a little closer to what Match of the Day was. And it was as amicable a conversation as you could you could have. This is before, I think it was maybe a week into the third season that it did. Phil's like, we, we want it in three, four years to be in a situation where they're very comparable. And this isn't you. You've said from the beginning, this isn't you. And I said, Phil, not at all. You know it's not me and I know it's not me. I still am frustrated with where we are. I'd like it to be a far way away and I'm like your decision's simple you know we either take it really far away which I know is not going to happen I'm your man but if not I'm probably not done story about 
the pundits was three, four months later. Literally woke up in the morning, no warning, no, nobody bothered to ring up, and just bang. First call I got, Mark Lawrence and Alan Hansen. That Saturday, Sunday, Alan Hansen came in to match day two when he wasn't even on the show. By the way, the fuck was all that about? He doesn't swear, actually. What was that about? You know I would never... You've nailed this, son. You've nailed this. I, he said, are you all right? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. I know. That's all that matters. You know, I think that's kept me warm a lot in the last year with some of the stuff that's happened. And you're still doing stuff? But, uh, yeah, I'm doing, the, I'm doing the darts. Right. I was going to do the NFL. They haven't got the contract, so I won't be doing that. And the doors open to look at places where I might fit in. It coincided with something that I decided at the start of the season when I was having the conversations with Philip Burney. I changed the agent. I had just finished doing, working in the Olympics and had made a documentary that took me every single second of my life for six months called Gold Run, where I, I tracked down 113 Olympic gold medalists. And I said to my boss at the time, I said to my producer, I said, this is the death of the making of me because I don't want to do stuff that's not creative anymore. I've had like the journey of my life doing this and I, I want to be creative on a day to day. I want to get up and I'm going to make that the priority. And I just let all my contracts run out. And I've never done that before. That's a their side. They, they said they weren't renewing it based on what I've told you. But I just let all of them run out. You know, when they were saying, do you want to sign? Do you want to sign? I was like, I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to see what's around. First time I've ever really done that. I think it's, I think it's the McDonald's in me, you know. I'm, I'm from a council estate. And I'm from the YTP scheme. And I work in the McDonald's. And you do think, like, it's that great scene in Only Fools and Horses when Del Boy says to Rodney when they're in... Uh, Boise's showroom to buy their Rolls Royce, is it? And he goes, this could still go tits up. And he goes, he goes, it's Sotheby's, it's not Ronnie and Reggie. I still have in my head, it's Ronnie, you know, at any stage, I've, you know. So I usually deal quite in advance. Okay, I'm good, I'm, I'm gonna get paid for the next three years. Uh, whereas the first time I really just went, let's just see what happens. That was Colin Murray there talking to me at TalkSport Towers after one of his shows last week. And you can read more about that interview at theguardian.com slash media. And now I'm joined by The Guardian's TV and radio editor, Rebecca Nicholson. Rebecca, hello. Hello. All recovered from uh, Edinburgh? All recovered back in the TV lair. Back to reality. Back to reality. (laughs) So what's been on the Rebecca Nicholson box this week? I have watched The Great British Bake Off. Ah, a programme I have proudly I have never seen. Did you see, so obviously we were in Edinburgh last week at the TV festival and part of this was a live version of The Great British Bake Off. And it gave me such respect for Mel and Sue because they managed to carry something that is essentially not particularly interesting for a whole hour and make it funny throughout, throughout the whole hour. People were making biscuits on stage and they made this funny. So I, I kind of came to this series with, with this new respect for them. And this week's episode was Bread, which is my favourite episode in the Bake Off run, second only to Pies. See, this, pies is, why, is, this better, is why I don't watch but... it. This is just like listening to a foreign language. What? Bread but and bread, Pies? Are these regular recurring episodes? Or they well, get they, a bread so episode, so you look to, forward to it. They all make the... Um, Paul Hollywood is the bread expert. He's a bread man. Oh, you're so new to this. It's, we're on the fourth series. There's so much you've got to learn. Well, I've heard of Paul Hollywood's Bread, which is another show I didn't watch. Yeah, well, this is the kind of shorter, funnier version of that. And it's, is it cooking on gas? Well, they've avoided jazzing it up in any sort of overt way, which I think is good because it's part of the comfort of Great British Bake Off is its familiarity. So you don't want to suddenly introduce like a timed one minute long round where they have to come up with as many jazzy biscuits. Anyway, 
I'm just, you know, thinking of... You're free, you're free I'm worried I'm going to yeah. give them ideas. Exactly, careful. Um, so you know how Come Dine With Me when it started? People made three courses and that was it. Sure, I've never then, seen <laughs> <laughs> But this is what happened. It was very simple. And then somebody, one person, and I wonder who that first person is, decided that they were going to introduce entertainment to it. So now every Come Dine With Me is, you know, there's drinks, there's pre-dinner nibbles, you get your three courses, probably the fish course as well, a bit of extra. Then there's entertainment and themes, and it's all just kind of growing. And it's not, as, it's not as good as it was when it was simple. And I worried at first that there might be an element of this, because this was the bread um, episode, and everyone had to make a loaf. And actually the person who left made the kind of plainest loaf, but someone made a loaf that looked like the psychic octopus. <laughs> Paul's and psychic octopus. <laughs> right. And it was terrible. And I don't know why he didn't go. But I just worried ever so slightly that people might be trying to vajazzle their bread. Vajazzle is a oh terrible God. Please, not, not in Mary Berry's uh, presence. <laughs> to jazz up their bread. <laughs> but it didn't happen. I, I mean, it did, but it felt okay. I just I hope that that doesn't continue they don't kind of try and outdo each other with more and more spectacular bakes rather than just making a nice good loaf of bread paul the psychic octopus was it wasn't he from the world cup or a european yes. cup a while ago and right could predict the results right and they made a loaf look like him they made not it, well it didn't really look it looked like a tumor but oh my god <laughs> you're not selling this i don't want to eat a bread that look, a piece of bread looks like a tumor i don't think anyone wanted to eat it it wasn't mm. it wasn't a success but some of it looked delicious Someone made peace bread, which involved um, Israeli and Palestinian ingredients. Okay, let's move on. I'm uh, well, so it's a massively popular BBC Two cooking show. It might go to BBC One, who knows? Uh, but uh, if they do, it might go stale. I fear. But let's uh, next up is uh, let's let's uh, let's move to a show I did watch. Top of the Lake. Yes. As I said to you on this social medium called Twitter, never did I cheer more at the TV <laughs> as when the advertising executive from 1960s New York shot David Brent in the chest. <laughs> God, it was a relief to see Weird Al finally he was take one in the gut. Brent like. <laughs> what an arsehole. But it turns out, if I can say that advisedly, but he's actually a much. I just thought he was an idiot. Did you it not turns see out it he's coming? a giant sleazeball. Well, this a bit. What, I knew there yeah. was some kind of weirdness going on at the cafe with Did the you, baristas. Yeah, I think. And actually, I had been writing the series blog for the website uh, on a weekly basis. I should have read. The, no, the commenters picked up on what was happening. About I'm going to read that again through. in retrospect. Yeah. Good commenters. Everyone, everyone knew it was coming. You should turn it that into a and, book. Yeah, <laughs> be a very short book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that and uh, everyone guessed the twist with the, with uh, I've forgotten his name already. How quickly these things leave my mind. What's his name? Matt. Matt Mitchum. Oh, Matt Mitchum. Yeah, everyone I wasn't quite sure of. Twist as well, which... What was the twist? Did I miss that? I mean, Almost we've given brother. up on our no spoilers policy, but yeah. it was on a couple of weeks ago, so I think we're okay. Um, he was Robin's real father. Yes. Yes. I think and so there, she'd yeah. been having an affair with her brother, but then like, they pulled that they were, oh, he's not her brother after this all. This is like I'm watching it in real time. It's taking my <laughs> brain so long. It's just reenacting it for you. But that was good. But despite, despite the uh, giant hole at the centre of it, yeah. uh, by the name of... Um, Elizabeth Moss. Yeah, I didn't think she was very good, but I still didn't think it was you? a really good series, but I thought she was kind of, despite her, not because of her. If I, in my mind, if I gave her a reason for having that terrible accent, like, in my mind, she'd just popped off to New York for six years before she came back to... Uh, and then I was fine with it. I thought right. she was very good and very, yeah. But it, the accent was, wasn't was great. I wonder how well it will do in awards time. I don't know. I think it will divide I think people. people like, do you, I mean, Jane Campion 
Elizabeth Moss. It was mm. serious. It looked good. That was an, another interesting thing that came up at Edinburgh. Vince Gilligan talking about Breaking Bad looking the way it does because people just have bigger tellies now. So you don't need to do all those close shots. I'm doing a lot of hand gestures that you can't see. But you don't need to do all those close shots. You can have the huge cinematic wide shots because people's TVs can take it. And that made me think of Top of the Lake in a very different way because obviously it had all those beautiful wide shots of paradise and the mountains and the lakes and that's possible now so I enjoyed it I mean if enjoyed feels like possibly the wrong word for a terribly miserable series it was worth it for that it brutal bullet in the guts I wonder if Al died that wasn't clear was it I hope he well, did well he crawled to the door didn't he and then she shut it on his bleeding almost corpse and it makes me think when uh, Al did the badness and, and the... Uh, I never remember any characters' <laughs> names from any, from any drama. That's actually in the script. But when her Al out, does the badness. <laughs> when her out of Mad Men fell asleep because he drugged her. Yeah. Uh, did he actually, you know... Was there actually some think, nefarious goings on while she was uh, unconscious? Yeah, you know, I don't think we women. know. Yeah. It's probably best not to. She's had a... She had a hard time. She did, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Moving on. Next up. Now, let's put a smile back on the face of, of podcast listeners everywhere. You'll probably set one opposite uh, on the train, so watch them smile as I say this. Uh, chickens. On, well, I say that. I don't know if you enjoyed it. Chickens on Sky One with uh, most of the in-betweeners, or half of them, half and of them. Barry Humphreys. Yes. Marks out of ten. Let's cut to the quick. Yeah. Oh, putting me on the spot. I would say eight. Oh. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's very funny. It's very quick. Um, it's got lots of people in it that I like. And I just thought, you know, Up the Women that we talked about for probably a few months ago now yes. on BBC Four, which was set in a similar period. With and Jessica, what's her name from Jessica space? Jessica Hines, and it just wasn't very funny and didn't, I mean, it wasn't great. I wanted it to be a lot better than it was, but it didn't really make the most of that setting or that time period or anything, really. It just, I thought this did the exact opposite. It was very quick. Everything flowed nicely. There were lots of good gags. It, it didn't. I want to say droop. It didn't droop in Paul. many places, but uh, I thought it was very. I thought it was great. I thought it was really great. And it looked beautiful. It looked, it looked very expensive. Good, didn't it? Luscious. But it had that, that filtered thing that a lot of stuff has. It was a bit like what else looked like that? Utopia almost looked a bit like that as well. It's that without kind of the eye gouge. We are elegant uh, filter. Without it, you never know. You don't know what's coming. And I can reveal the second episode is funnier than the first. Is it really? It finds its stride. What would you have given it out of ten? Well, I just said seven, but I'm you know I, I hold back. But yeah. I, now you said eight. I wish I'd thought of that. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can have it if you like. Okay, seven and a half. I won't judge you. Well, that's chickens. Uh, your next portion uh, is up on Sky One on Thursday. The portion chicken fillets. Anyway, right, move on. Uh, Rebecca Nicholson, thank you very much. Thanks. Well, my thanks to all this week's guests, who were Ollie Mann and Josh Halliday, and also joining us down the line were Miranda Sawyer and, of course, Mr Colin Murray from Talk Sport, uh, 10 till 1pm every weekday, I think. Is that a good plug? That'll do. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. You can contact me at johnplunkett149 on Twitter. You can struggle to find our Facebook wall, or why not leave a message on our blog? Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.